Good morning, College Park. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 3 and verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Happy 4th of July weekend. We've got a great text, an appropriate text to be looking at this morning on this weekend. We're going to talk about where our ultimate citizenship lies. Uh, First off, I just want to say thank you to College Park Church. It has been an absolutely wonderful five years that we've been here. I have been richly blessed by this church and by many of you individually here this morning. Let's pray. Father, it is not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth that we live. And so we come this morning to your holy word to receive true food. And so would you help me to be faithful to your word? Help me to be clear. Give these people ears to hear. And would you exalt exalt Jesus Christ from your word as we continue to worship through preaching? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my wife and I have uh, four kids. Our daughter, Abigail, is going to turn six years old next month. And I remember very clearly in the months after her little brother David was born, about three years ago, how it was fascinating to watch her begin to play in new ways. Her imagination was exploding. I remember vividly one time walking through our living room and looking over at Abigail sitting in our brown recliner, uh, laying back real still. She had a blanket over her body and something underneath the blanket. And perplexed, I said, Abigail, what are you doing? And she was kind of like, duh, daddy, I'm feeding my baby. She lifted up her blanket to reveal her doll under there. Another time I was able to walk up uh, stairs and stand in her bedroom door unnoticed to observe her while she was playing. And she had a baby on the floor on its back, changing the play diaper. And she was saying things like, oh, baby, you pooped again? Oh, baby, that is stinky. I'm sure you're not, it's no mystery why Abigail was playing in these new ways. She was seeing these things on a daily basis as she observed her mom. And she was imitating. She was imitating new things that she was seeing. No one had to teach Abigail how to imitate either. I think we are wired to learn by imitating those whom we admire. The question isn't whether or not you are imitating someone. The question is, 
who are you imitating? In our text this morning, Paul culminates the main body of this letter to the Philippian church by urging us to imitate the model citizens of heaven until Christ comes. I say this text is the culmination of the main body of this book that we've been studying because there are some clear clues to tell us this. And I want to show you um, by looking back a little bit and walking the path that we've been walking for the last few weeks because I want you to see this. It shows the significance of our text this morning and Paul's call to imitation. So look back at chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 with me. Paul writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember that refrain that Dale had us repeat? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Now, these verses here share in common several ideas from our text that we're looking at today. The first of those is citizenship. When Paul writes in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have an ESV and look in the footnotes, it tells you there that literally that is only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And over in our text today, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And then Paul also talks about standing firm. Here he's, he says, I, I, I hope to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. And over in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's going to conclude our passage today by saying, therefore stand firm thus in the Lord. Here also he talks about opponents, opponents that he doesn't want them to be frightened by and that he assures them they will be destroyed. And over in Chapter 3, Paul talks about enemies of the cross whose end is destruction. So we can see that in our passage today, today, 3.17-4.1, Paul's giving a climactic charge that he's been building towards for two whole chapters. For the last two chapters and for us about the last seven weeks, Paul's been giving living and dying examples of how Christians ought to live in order to display the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we want to see this so again we can see the significance of Paul's call to imitation here. So after calling the Philippians to live as citizens worthy, in chapter 2 he gives the commandment, you remember these, to count others more significant than ourselves and to consider the interests of others just like we consider our own. And then he walks through several examples, specific flesh and blood examples of what this looks like. First, there's the example of Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, equal with God the Father, who came down, taking the form of a servant, even dying the horrible death on the cross for us. Then there's Timothy and Epaphroditus looking out for number one, not themselves, but Jesus Christ. Timothy, considering the interests of the Philippians more than his own. Epaphroditus, more concerned that his friends had heard that he was sick, than that he was sick himself, and risking his life for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, there's Paul. He sets himself forward as an example of one who's willing to count all things as lost for the sake of gaining Christ, who, who presses forward and strives to know Christ in his suffering and to know the power of his resurrection. And so now he's giving one final charge 
for us to imitate the model citizens of heaven until Christ returns. Okay, that's the main point of this text. That's what we're getting at today. We're called to imitate the model citizens of heaven until Christ returns. Okay, so Paul emphasizes this by giving us a charge, two reasons, and a conclusion. So let's look at those in turn. First, Paul gives us a charge. Okay, look at verse 17 with me. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Okay, we're going to ask the question, imitate what, Paul? What do, we, what do you want us to imitate? But before we get there, I want us first to think about the gravity of this call. Okay. Do you guys remember where Paul's writing from? He's, he's writing from a Roman prison, chained to a Roman soldier, probably. And he's writing, calling us to imitate his way of life. Imagine receiving a letter. Imagine, imagine being um, a Sudanese citizen, receiving a letter from Miriam Ibrahim, the young Sudanese woman who was on death row because she had converted to Christianity. She was released from that, but just this last week was re-imprisoned. Imagine receiving a letter from her where she says, imitate my faith in Christ. Now, Paul's not a downer, though. This isn't bad news. In fact, Paul is probably one of the happiest people who has ever lived on the face of this earth. From prison, as he writes, it's almost as he's shouting at the beginning of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. And just in a few more verses, he's going to do it again in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord. So Paul's calling us to a joyful gravity. There's, there's some weight to this call that he's giving us, but it's filled with joy. So what is he calling us to imitate? What's been implicit for the last two chapters, he's going to make explicit. He's calling us to imitate, not to climb the ladder to heaven, but again, 127 is the banner over all of this. He's calling us to live in a way that displays the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this is what is at the heart of these examples. We display the worth of Christ by joyfully suffering loss to gain Christ. That's the example that he's calling us to follow. We joyfully suffer loss in order to gain Christ. For Jesus, it was suffering the loss of his very life that he might display his own infinite worth as Lord over all creation. For Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, again, counting everything as lost that they might gain Christ, laying down their preferences, risking their life for the cause of Christ. For us, it can mean a myriad of things. It might mean deliberately choosing a lower standard of living so that we can give generously to other people or to the cause of Christ. It might mean new empty nesters giving up some new freedom and becoming safe families volunteers and welcoming in needy children. It might mean something as simple as learning to ask thoughtful questions of other people and then really listening to them. These are some of the things that it might look like for us to follow Paul's example. And these might sound like simple things, but this really is revolutionary. To live in this way it goes completely against our nature. We, we are born utterly self-centered. 
Something needs to happen to us if we're even going to begin to learn to live this way. The Bible calls it new birth or a new creation or taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. But something radical has to happen. But when God does this through the gospel, when we put our faith in Christ and we're born anew, it's not as if we automatically know how to live this way. We've got to learn. We've got to practice. And one of the ways in which we do this is by watching others who've learned to do it and by imitating them. And we need flesh and blood examples that we can see with our eyes and we can hear with our ears of joyfully suffering loss to gain Christ. In fact, imitation seemed to be pretty fundamental to Paul's whole philosophy of ministry. I think if we're we're not including this in how we think about growing in Christ, we're missing a huge component of how we do that. He frequently calls the churches to whom he's writing to imitate him. Look at just a few other places where Paul commands imitation. I'm going to read a few up on the screen here. Just a few verses later, next chapter 4, Paul says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I, as I teach them everywhere in every church. First Thessalonians, he says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And then finally, again, in 1 Corinthians 11:1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay, I think we all intuitively know this. We've probably all experienced this before. Without minimizing the importance of teaching and preaching, we know that many things are more easily caught than taught. I grew up in northwest Indiana, not far from Chicago, in the heyday of Michael Jordan, the peak of his career. And there was a famous Gatorade commercial Uh, When I was a kid, I bet you a lot of you remember it. It had a jingle that went like this. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And the commercial alternated between scenes of Jordan doing some of his trademark moves and then regular ordinary people trying to imitate him, you know, sticking out their tongue as they drive to the lane. But the truth is, the game of basketball was transformed by a whole generation of kids growing up watching Michael Jordan and imitating him. So in the same way that we can learn a skill like basketball or like cooking or a musical instrument, we can also learn a way of life, a pattern of living by imitation. This is, in my life, I've had many people, um, a handful of people in particular that I can think back on and and say, I watched their lives and I imitated them. But one in particular that really sticks out is Eric Steffen. I bet you many in this room remember Eric Steffen. He was on staff with crew at Indiana University when I was a student. 
And I was a brand new Christian. And he met with me week after week. He was really patient. Week after week. And he opened the scriptures to me. But that's not all he did. He opened his life to me. I watched him share the gospel with college students dozens of times. I heard with my own ears him express his passion for the Turkish people to know the gospel. I was there when he began to date Kelly, and I heard the way he honored her with his words and his speech and treated her with kindness. I was able to watch Eric's life and to imitate him. And then I watched him for 18 months suffer with brain cancer, embracing Christ all the way till the end. And it was wonderful. I watched his life and I've learned to imitate his example. So who are you imitating? Remember, the question is not whether or not you're imitating someone. You are. Who is it? Whose life are you watching? Who do you admire and want to be like? Who do you know who is joyfully suffering loss to gain Christ? And how are they doing it? Paul says, keep your eyes on those people and imitate their way of life. Leaders, pastors, elders, small group leaders and coaches, mops leaders, Awana table leaders, Sunday school teachers, dads, parents, and many others. Is your life worthy of imitation? And are you opening up your life for others to watch and imitate? Our mission here at College Park Church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. And the only way we will fulfill that mission is if we have leaders who are passionately following Jesus and putting that on display for others to watch and to imitate. Notice that Paul's call here is not uniquely apostolic. He's not saying, imitate me because I'm an apostle. He says, imitate me and Timothy and Epaphroditus and anybody who walks according to the pattern that you've seen in us. You don't have to be perfect. Paul himself just said a few verses earlier in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Don't think that you've got to get your act totally together before you can... Put your life on display for others to imitate. Follow Christ. Lay down your preferences, your desires for the good of others. Strive after Christ and let others watch and imitate. So Paul first here has given us this charge to imitate the model citizens of heaven. In verses 18 to 21, he now gives us two reasons for this call to imitation gives us two reasons. Reason number one is this, that there is present danger. There's present danger. Look at verses 18 to 19 with me. Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul weeps as he writes because of people who are living in the midst of the Philippians, perhaps even former church members of the church of Philippi who have walked away from Christ. 
He weeps as he describes these enemies of the cross. They walk according to a different pattern, not according to the pattern of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. So what's the connection here? Why is this a reason for verse 17? He starts this off with the little word for, so we know he's giving a reason. I think, I think Paul's logic goes like this. Imitate us who walk according to the pattern of Christ because there are many bad examples out there who would lead you down a path of destruction. He's already seen this happen in so many lives. Now, it's hard to pinpoint exactly who these enemies of the cross are exactly in the original context, but he gives us a fourfold description of them here that I think helps us to know what they're like and maybe perhaps to be able to spot them in our own context. He starts off, their end is destruction. He begins with their end, their ultimate destiny. Ultimately, that's most important. He says their end is destruction. He's not talking about physical death here. We're all going to die physically unless Christ comes back first. He's talking about the final judgment and God's condemnation on their lives because they've rejected Christ and they've rejected the pattern of Christ-like living. The reason for this is because he says their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. These people are ruled by their appetites, their desires, their cravings. They, they're like gods to them. They must have them. They don't deny self for the sake of others. Rather, they indulge themselves in their appetites at the expense of others. They value people and objects only for what they can get out of them. These people are divisive. In Romans 16, Paul warns of divisive people and he says, they serve their belly. Same phrase that he uses here. They destroy relationships and community. Next, Paul says, they glory in their shame. It's not easy to know exactly what he means here, but I, I think he means this. These people put confidence in their flesh, in their pedigree and in their performance. I think this because if you look back at chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes this. Again, he's giving a warning about people to to look out for. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here you have Paul describing Christians. We are the the true circumcision. We glory in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe what he means. We put no confidence in the flesh. On the other hand, these enemies of the cross glory in their shame. I think they set themselves up as worthy of merit before God. They have confidence in their pedigree, who they are and where they've come from. And their performance, what they can do or what they have done. Lastly, Paul says, their minds are set on earthly things. Paul's had a lot to say in Philippians about our minds, hasn't he? The mind, the kind of mindset that he wants us to have. He wants us to uh, have the mind of Christ. He wants us to have one mind together, the same mind, to have a similar mindset. But here, these enemies of the cross set their minds on things that are merely earthly The gaze never lifts above the horizontal to the heavenly. They live only for the here and now. 
They might be religious, but there's no real God orientation. There's no pressing on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Their affections are completely directed to what they can see and touch and taste. These are the characteristics of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul here means to wave a big red flag over them and say, don't imitate them. Imitate us who walk according to the pattern of Christ. I think here's the point. You know, our lifestyle, our affections, what we value, what we live for, our goals, our, what we fix our minds on, and the behavior that comes out of that, will reveal the authenticity of our profession of faith. Don't be deceived by people who use God talk and sound religious and talk very smoothly. Don't be deceived. Is that talk matched by a lifestyle of laying down their lives for the good of others and for the cause of Christ? And we don't want to deceive ourselves either. So this is... Paul's first reason for his charge to imitate godly examples, there's present danger from enemies of the cross, and we don't want to walk down that path. There's another reason that Paul gives, verses 20 and 21. Reason number two for imitating Paul is that there's a future hope for we who are fellow citizens with him of heaven. Look at 20 and 21 with me. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, the ESV translates the first word of verse 20 as but. It's a good translation because there's an obvious contrast in verse 20 and verse 19. Okay, we are citizens of heaven, not earthly minded. We are destined for resurrection life with Christ, not for destruction. Jesus Christ is our Lord, not our bellies. And we will be transformed and really will be glorious, not glorying in our shame. But verse 20 actually begins with the Greek word gar, which literally means for or because. So we see Paul here is is giving another reason for his call to imitation in verse 17. We want to see this because he's grounding this call to imitation. That's the main point of the paragraph, but it's really not the most important thing. Paul's grounding his call to imitation in this massive theological reality of a future hope and a present citizenship in heaven that we enjoy. So if we could sum up here what he's saying of why we should imitate Paul and other godly examples... It's because right now, our loyalties belong to another king, and we await a glorious future. In other words, our future hope, at least in part, is a present reality that we enjoy because of our union with Christ by faith. Notice what he says there. Our citizenship is in heaven. Not will be in heaven, it is in heaven, because we're connected with Christ. It's a present reality that we enjoy. Paul's not saying, follow me on the path towards citizenship in heaven. Follow me and you will be citizens of heaven. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying you are citizens of heaven. Imitate me because you are right now citizens of heaven. And your loyalty is to Jesus Christ. Now, Philippi was colonized by Rome about a hundred years before Paul wrote this letter. This meant that many people living in Philippi, including probably many in the church there, were actually citizens of Rome. Though they were living in Philippi, their allegiance was to Caesar, and their way of life would have been distinctively Roman. One commentator writes this, The task of a Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece, to expand Roman influence there. So what does Paul then mean by saying our citizenship is in heaven? I think typically we assume it means something like this. We Christians don't belong here. Our real home is in heaven, and we're waiting for one day when we'll fly away and we'll be with Jesus in heaven. But... That's actually the opposite of what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that the church is like a colony of heaven, just like Philippi was a colony of Rome. The church is like a colony of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, it's our task to bring the culture and influence of heaven to earth, to spread the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Now, Just as a little aside, a 4th of July aside, this actually gives us great perspective on what it means to celebrate the 4th of July. The the fact that we are ultimately citizens of heaven relativizes our citizenship in the United States. Citizenship here, the United States, is not our God. We don't worship the president or even our nation as great as it is. It relativizes it. Yet... The king of heaven, the one to whom we owe ultimate allegiance, says, pay taxes, honor your leaders, obey them, pray for them, be a good citizen of the United States. So don't feel guilty if you celebrated the 4th of July. That was good. But don't make it your ultimate God. So... Again, notice what Paul says here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Again, the direction is Jesus is up there in heaven now, and we're waiting for him to come here. And so now we wait for him on this earth, not passively, but actively, seeking to bring the culture and influence of heaven here. So what does this mean for us as a church? Well, I think it means there ought to be a a heavenly environment, not perfect, but to some extent a heavenly culture among us. That's why Paul's been so insistent for two chapters to, to help us to count others as more significant than ourselves, to consider the interests of others, to die to self for the sake of others so that we can live together in a community of people who love one another and we're different from the world around us. So Paul's logic ultimately, I think, is this. Imitate me and other model citizens of heaven because we belong to King Jesus and he's coming to set up his rule. All rebellion is going to be squelched. The enemies of the cross will be defeated and he's going to make all things new. So Paul's given us a charge to imitate the model citizens of heaven. He, his friends Timothy and Epaphroditus and others, He's given us two reasons why we ought to imitate them. 
Now he moves to a conclusion in verse 1 of chapter 4. Based on all that he said here, Paul writes this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is where Paul's been headed ever since chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, when he said, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. Following Christ is not easy. It requires daily death to self. There are enemies, but we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. Now, Paul loves these Philippian believers, doesn't he? Look again at how he speaks to them. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. He's got to throw in one more. My beloved. May God give the leaders of College Park Church this kind of affection for you all. And I I think I can say this because I'm leaving and there's no need for me to curry favor. I think he's doing that. Your, Your leaders, your pastors and elders here love you and love this church. So Paul longs for these Philippian believers and for us to stand firm together with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In fact, this this whole passage uh, has a very community flavor to it. We Americans tend to read scripture through our individualistic lenses, don't we? But Paul here is more like a military general commanding his troops together rather than a boxing coach giving a pep talk to his prize fighter. So we might paraphrase the whole passage something like this. All of you join together in imitating me because we belong to a heavenly community and we're waiting together for our Savior, Jesus, to return. Therefore, all of you help each other to stand firm in the Lord. Is this your experience of the Christian life? Who, who have you locked arms with? Who are you standing firm with together? Who in this church knows you, really knows you, knows your struggles, your sins and temptations, your joys and your victories? Who do you know like that? Who do you pray with, encourage, comfort, confront even sometimes? Into whose life are you speaking the word of God to? You know, perhaps you're here today and you fit into one of a few categories of people that we've seen in this passage. Perhaps you're a Lone Ranger Christian. You're not deeply connected to a community. You might be a citizen, but you're not involved in the the life of the church and the kingdom of heaven. You come on Sundays and you're rather anonymous, and you leave and you go home, and you live the rest of the week, your Christian life, all by yourself. If that's you, I would just encourage you to think about ways that you might be able to plug in and build relationships with other Christians here. Okay, one one possible way that you could do this is by signing up for Live 14, where you can get into a small group, and link arms with some other Christians and think about and apply the truths of what the Bible has to say about our identity in Christ. 
You can go on the web today, yourchurch.com, and register for Live 14. Perhaps you came in today and you you walked into this uh, building as an enemy of the cross. You've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never thought of yourself as an enemy, but that's what the Bible says. Unless we have turned from our sins and put our faith in Christ, we're enemies of him. But the good news is this. Right now, you can lay down your will to run your own life. Turn from living a self-directed life and put your faith in Christ, the one who died on the cross to reconcile us to himself and to God. You can be a friend of Jesus Christ today. We'll have some people up here that you could talk to if you, if you want to discuss that. Lastly, maybe you came in here and, and what you need is you need to simply evaluate who you're imitating. You need to think about who you're watching. Who, who draws the gaze of your attention. And you need to perhaps watch somebody else and imitate somebody else. Okay, so who is it in your life who lives according to the pattern of Paul and ultimately the pattern of Jesus Christ, of self-sacrifice for the good of others? Maybe you even need to ask him, hey, I've, I've noticed something different about you. Could we get together on a regular basis so that I could watch your life and imitate you? They'll, they'll be primed. If it's somebody in this church, they'll be primed for that now. It won't be weird. All right? So, we are... Citizens of heaven now were charged to bring the culture and influence of heaven to bear on this earth now. And we're to live together as a community of people who love one another and count others more significant than ourselves. And I pray God provides in this church many examples of people to imitate, many people who are striving after Christ and imitating others. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What news that despite our rebellion against you, you yourself took the initiative to provide a way for us to be reconciled to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be merely speaking God talk, but we would put our faith in Christ and that our genuine faith would result in a new way of living. Lord, I pray you'd provide many examples for us here, for us to to watch and to imitate. And for those who need to be those who are imitated, that they would step up, display their lives for others to see and follow. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Jeff, thanks for that good word. And I just, on behalf of College Park, would like to say thanks for the five years you've been here. Thanks for that word. And and I hope that you respond, and I hope that I respond to the text, because the power of the text, we're citizens of heaven, and yet we have the privilege of imitating God. So I want to read a benediction for you guys and then for us at College Park that I think is appropriate. It's at the end of Hebrews, and this is the way we ought to go from here. And it says this, and Jeff, I say this to you and Kristen and to your family as well as to us at College Park. Now, to me, the God of peace 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great Sunday. Thanks, God.